Welcome to episode 104 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 104th-ish time by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. Ciao. Ciao. I'm over in Italy. You are in San Francisco. We're far away, but close to each other for the next however long this podcast takes, in the spirit of all things tennis and NCR-ish. How's America doing without me? America's surviving. It's doing all right. Um... You know, nothing massive going on. A lot of playoffs and sports happening that I don't care about. And I don't think you care about really other than hockey. Yeah, not so, really. Yeah, I don't really do NBA playoffs. There was golf. Don't really care much about that. So pretty chill. Pretty chill times. I'm bummed to be missing Rome, though. You know how much I love it. You do love it. It doesn't feel right without you. It's just like, this it was feels like your weird. place. This was like your you signature tournament. I know. And you know what's weird is that, like, and and you can totally relate to this, is that having done this whole tour thing year after year after year your body does get used to certain tennis rhythms yeah and i feel incredibly displaced right now like i feel like last week when i was you know when watching madrid and stuff i kept like having these little like cold panics about like oh i need to pack or something about like i need to check my calendar or just a weird feeling knowing or my body was like thinking that i was supposed to be on the road and in rome this week but um, but I'm not. And that's OK. I'm perfectly OK with it, especially given all of the, the travel difficulties getting there this oh, year. Oh, God. Yeah. So so basically the Rome airport, for those who don't know, the Rome airport bursts into flames, <laughs> the international terminal of it. And honestly, it's about time. I mean, that <laughs> airport, it needed a bit of an overhaul. I'm surprised that Rome has kept it fire free for so many years. <laughs> it's kind of their style. Um but yeah, so I had to, instead of flying, I was flying via London. So instead of going Washington, London, Rome, I went Washington, London, Zurich, Naples, and then took a train. It was a bit arduous, but I'm here. And I'm jealous you got to take a train, though. It was, yeah, but the, the go, getting from the uh, airport to Naples to the train station was not fun. It was like a grungy, grungy bus situation, followed oh. by like weaving through five blocks of pickpocketers. So not great, That's not good, not not ideal. But I'm here, and tennis is starting up here. It just finished in, in Madrid. So we're mostly going to talk about Madrid, but we're also going to bring you some Rome at the end with the ultra Italian guest Ubaldo Scanagata, who is the founder of Ubi Tennis and one of the more memorable characters in the tennis media world. I would say, Courtney, is that a fair understatement? Ubaldo is a legend. People outside of like. Uh, the tennis journalism scene might not realize that Ubaldo is a legend, but I have a feeling that once uh, you hear Ben's interview and discussion, uh, which I'm sure will be wide ranging with Ubaldo, uh, you will come away realizing that Ubaldo Scanagata is an absolute freaking legend. Like one of the like just original great um, uh, just tennis writers, tennis brands. I mean, kind of one of the original bloggers, really, if you think yeah. about his site um possibly the and, first uh, tennis like blogger. yeah exactly possibly the first tennis blogger and, and a more mainstream um, journalist before that because he's yeah not you know of the typical blogger generation at all because he was a pro player for a while anyway you'll hear all about him yeah i wouldn't hear all about it, it yet, but... so i have no idea what he's gonna say at this point uh so we'll see so let's get started with madrid 
Courtney, when watching Andy Murray beat Rafael Nadal in a Clay Masters final, it's not something we probably expected to see anytime. Uh, would have wouldn't have expected traditionally on paper, but it happened and it was emphatic and a little strange, a little disconcerting, you would say. I yeah, I'm not entirely sure what I saw exactly. I mean, it, so much of this match. I mean, Andy Murray played an absolutely solid match. He continued to play just solid clay court tennis. Um, as he's done nine straight wins on clay undefeated since he's been married, um, back-to-back titles, you know, two titles in effectively what, six days, seven days, six, six, seven days. I mean, pretty Mm -hmm. remarkable stuff. And, and the way that he played against Rafa, um, and his level and his ability to maintain his level was, um, really remarkable. I don't mean in a hyperbolic way, but it was remarkable. It was worth remarking about. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was notable. Um, but the story of the final was Rafa. And, um, you know, I, I think obviously if you listen to NCR, you know that for weeks now I've been saying, everybody chill out about Rafael Nadal. You know, let's not panic yet. We still have plenty of, plenty of time. He still has plenty of time. But I think that, um, his performance over the last, couple of weeks in Barcelona losing to Fabio Fanini playing an absolutely shit match there. Um, and then to be frank, this final was another shit match and, and it came really out of the blue. Um, again, much like Barcelona, I thought that there was a lot to build upon with his run to the semifinals in Monte Carlo played a pretty good competitive match against Novak Djokovic losing there. Um, and then he flopped in Barcelona and then same thing here. He plays what was his best clay court match, arguably, um, in the semifinals, beating Thomas Burdick, 7-6-6-1. Um, forehand was absolutely cracking. Hit 16 forehand winners um, in that semifinal. And then comes out against Murray. And obviously, Andy's a better defender than Thomas. But um, hits five forehand winners. So many shanks. Paul Anacone and, and poor Tracy Austin doing commentary for Tennis Channel were speechless. I mean, it would just there would be these incredible misses on neutral balls and you would just hear them sigh into the mic because you couldn't really explain it. Um, and that erratic game is what worries me now because we are, you know, effectively one week away from the French Open. Obviously, there's, we're two weeks away, but he's just got Rome to kind of get things all together. And, um, you know, Andy Murray gave him chances to get back into that match today. And uh, he couldn't maintain his consistency and momentum. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a, a bit more concerned about Rafa now than I was a week ago or two weeks ago. Just because it's a term that we've used throughout our Rafa discussions over the past few weeks, would you say, should we issue the NCR breaking news alert, is Courtney Nguyen hitting the panic button on Rafa? <laughs> I that's been our, that's not, been our term. It is, it is, it is. I'm not hitting the panic button quite yet because, again, okay. we do have Rome. It can flip around. He could make the final and beat Novak. I mean, you know, in the in well, are they? Yeah, he could do it. Yeah. Um, so that could happen, and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, okay, well, we're back to where we're supposed to be. So anything can happen in the next seven days. But do I have the briefcase on the desk, and am I currently looking up nuclear codes? Um, possibly. Like you <laughs> know, like I, I'm a little bit closer to to kind of hitting the button. Um, and I'm and I'm definitely more concerned. I, I genuinely was not concerned three weeks ago. Genuinely. Um, and now I, I'm a little bit more, yeah. So Rafa is currently ranked number seven, dropped to that ranking for the first time, first time out of the top five since May, early May 2005, more than a decade ago. Uh, this makes it 
unless he wins Rome and has some other help from results along the way, I think um, he will not be a top four seed at the French Open, which means that those sort of a quarterfinal against Djokovic is in play. Same with Federer, same with Murray. Yeah, so it could be an interesting, interesting path for him. And if he, I think if he, no, I think if things go really, really wrong, there's some nightmare scenario he could even drop to number nine before the French Open. And that would put him possibly in a, you know, fourth round match against like a Nisha Corey or another five through eight seed. So that's where things get even super messier. But Rafa, yeah, just didn't look like himself at all. And Madrid has probably been his worst clay court tournament historically. The So even if he won it, I was, you know, not going to be like, oh, he's back, he's back, he's back. The conditions aren't the same. As we know, Madrid's success correlates more to Wimbledon success than French Open success. In that given year, it's good that you're winning matches, but it doesn't really translate to the French. So I would say that it's a little bit referring to Murray and Kvitova as a cautionary sort of thing. I don't think British press, it's just because Andy Murray won Madrid, that he's really, really in the driver's seat to win the French Open. But yeah, this was this from Nadal. I'm kind of rambling here, but from Nadal, this was more, probably the most concerning of all, that it happened in a final, that he was so flat in a big match against another big guy. This is not get going out. For me, this is more alarming than losing in the second round of a tournament to Fanini because that's where, like, okay, he didn't get out of the blocks, okay. But this was somewhere where he should have had rhythm. He was playing great against Burdich and had momentum with a fairly nice draw to get to the final and then just ran into a complete wall and couldn't work his way out of it whatsoever. Yeah, I think that with Madrid, it's just so... And, and this isn't just this year because you know, Andy won or Rafa lost or whatever it is. But just historically, as you said, it's a really difficult tournament to use as a gauge for, you know, success in Paris. And so, um, you know, it was a weird tournament. You know, you had Fed going out early, got curious with that win, uh, Burdick doing what he always does. Uh, Murray, I thought, playing the best match of his week and of his two weeks was against Nishikori in the sec- in the semifinals. Yeah. Um, so a lot was kind of going on, but you know, it is a bit of a wait and see because it, like you said, it, it's been Rafa's most, you know, least successful final. It's always been a tournament that favors big hitters, big servers. I mean, it's, you know, Roger Federer's most successful clay tournament. So hard, hard, to, hard to know what uh, what to take of it all, but uh, what a weird tournament. <laughs> I think the, thing that, the the stat that really brings it home for me at how weird Madrid is, and we can use this as a bit of a segue just to the other side, is that Petra Kvitova has won it twice. I mean, like, what kind yeah. of clay court tournament does Petra Kvitova win twice? With all due respect to Petra, obviously, <laughs> it shouldn't really happen on paper given her results everywhere else. Um, Petra Kvitova romped th- to the final through the t- title, really, after her, like, you, you pulled up her, like, tournament history. She goes 6-4 in the <laughs> third in her first match against Gavortseva, goes another third set against Vandeweghe in the next round, and then rolls over, you know, no seeds except for Serena. She only played one seed in the whole tournament. So it wasn't the toughest draw in the world, excepting, you know, that she beat Serena, which is always tough. But Petra, Petra gone Petra. I don't think her winning a title any week is a big surprise. It's not, and and that's that is Petra Kvitova, right? It, it's those she just happened to have one of those tournaments after those first two matches where she played at a level that makes you just want to tear your hair out because you're like, why, why can you not do this even just remotely consistently? I'm not saying like every single week to where you're like an absolutely dominant player on the level of a Serena Williams, but 
I mean, she should be winning, like, I don't know, one out of every three premier tournaments. Yeah. You know, at that level, it, it, it's absolutely incredible. So, I mean, with Petra's game, we know that on any given day, she can win any tournament. I don't care what the surface is. Um, you know, she has made the semifinals of the French in 2012, losing to Sharapova there. Um, Sharapova, who went on to win. So it's there's, it's not to say that she can't do it in Paris. And then, then you look back on her, you know, her break and she comes back pretty refreshed. I mean, her loss to Brengel and Stuttgart no longer looks as bad, given what Brengel was able to do there, making the semifinals. But otherwise, that's the only match she's lost yeah. since her return from from that six weeks off. Although Brengel did Pretty get darn good. Brengel did get 0 and one by Serena in the first round of Madrid. And so there's a nice little triangle of them beating each other in two weeks. <laughs> that uh, is true. It's the rare, you know, head to head triangle of top players. It includes Brengel. So good for her. Um, yeah. I, I, I was the win over Serena. I think it's the most notable for me. I mean, we always talked very, very highly about Petra's peak, peak Petra level, um, but she hadn't had a win over Serena before. And, We'd all, I think we'd always want. We'd. I think you'd agree that we believe that if everyone in the WTA is at their best, those are the top two. Those agreed. Those two players. They're, yeah, their their ceiling is the highest. And so it was. Even though Pet Serena was nowhere near her best in that match, it was nice because it's sort of a rivalry. I'll say that I've like I've like shipped this rivalry. It wasn't ever a rivalry at all, <laughs> but I wanted it to be one. So I was trying to make Petra Serena happen, and it just wasn't. And this win, even though it wasn't Serena at her best and it wasn't a super important match being a Madrid semi, I don't think Serena's losing too much sleep over it. Although she did, it did interrupt her undefeated year, so it was significant in that sense. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, yeah. we know how Serena Williams feels about Madrid. Right. No, we, we do. But <laughs> but Serena, <laughs> yeah, sure, I, get, I see what you did there. Uh, yes, in the grand scheme of things, I think it's good to make that hopefully rivalry. I would love to see them play more, basically, is all I'm saying. Yep. I want that rivalry to happen. You know, it's 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 almost the curse for Petra Kvitova how good she is. Like, you know, the level of her peakness. Because really, given how well she can play on any given day, in any given week, she's a favorite to win every tournament she enters. We don't always pick her. But, like, if you really just went with, like, well, who are the best, quote-unquote, tennis players in any given tournament, Petra's always either number one or number two. Yeah. Um, and has the ability to do it. So... You know, I, I think that it's a great wrinkle to throw into the clay season, um, just like with Murray. I mean, it's it's a great wrinkle to consider the, you know, possibility that if Andy Murray gets a great draw and if he doesn't have to face like a Nadal or um, or a Djokovic, you know, who knows? What if those two clash and then, you know, obviously one of the or clashes early in the tournament and then one of them loses and then the next one has to play like Anisha Corey, for example, or. Well, Whatever, the even on, on that front, you know? I, we were talking about this last night, the group of us here gathered in Rome, and we both think, we the group sort of decided that we think Murray has a better chance of beating Nadal in Paris than he does Djokovic. Yeah. And it's a better matchup for him at this point, Nadal. I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I totally would. Um, Just, yeah, matchup-wise, I think that he, he actually does, especially the way that he's been playing, I think that the, you know, I was super impressed with how his backhand held up. He didn't hit any winners off of it, but it was the shot that kind of really dictated the match for him. Um, but yeah, you know, who knows? But, but um, you know, it's a nice wrinkle for Petra Kvitova to be relevant on clay for us to be able to talk about her um, in that way. Again, is Madrid really going to be a gauge for, for French Open success? Not necessarily. And then obviously it's Petra Kvitova. I mean, she could lose to 
a qualifier you've never heard of in the first round of the French. She's so done it before. That's just, yeah, she's done it before. So What's up, Kukum? Um, we've heard of Luxi Kukum Kukum. I know. Well, uh, only because it makes us giggle. But, um, yeah, with, with both of them. Exactly. But she could lose to a Luisa Chirico in the first round. Yeah, Chirico getting the USDA wild card. Good for Chirico. Yeah. Bit of bit of some, you know, a mini controversy there with that wild card. Very quick sidebar because she okay. was tied with points with Kat Stewart. And Kat Stewart had beaten her twice during the wild card playoff tournaments. But Chirico owned the wild owned the tiebreaker of having a higher ranking. Was the way she got it. Hmm. So some, there's some green clay fodder for you if you're really into lower-ranked American women. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree with what you're saying, though. I, I don't know if they're both relevant in Paris as much, but I think this puts both of both of Murray and Kvitova on notice that they're winning again. And I think so. It makes me think highly of their Wimbledon chances, like I said before. Yeah, Madrid correlates to Wimbledon, so now they're both their Wimbledon stock rises further than their French Open stock from these wins, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense, and I and I I had to write up a thing after Murray's win um, in Madrid, and and that was one of the points that I made is like I don't know if this is going to pay off in Rome, or I'm sorry, in well in Rome or in Paris, mm-hmm. but I do know that like he is building up to something. It feels like, especially with Andy Murray, you know, I mean, he's you look at the the race to London rankings, he's number two like by a good margin. Um, and, uh, you know, by comparison, I think Rafa's at number six, Federer's at number seven, um, in the race to London. So he, he's right there. He's been the second best player on tour all year. You take that February aside where he had those weird losses, um, in Rotterdam and Dubai, and he's only lost to Novak this year. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable. That's pretty good. Yeah. He's building towards something. Now, whether or not he can solve the Novak problem, I don't know, but but it's interesting. You know, I, I think that that's a, a pretty compelling, you know, longer arc storyline to be keeping an eye on, especially as obviously we know he can win Wimbledon. We obviously know what he can do at the U.S. hard courts as well. So who knows with Mr. Murray? But, um, you know, got to give all that credit to Jonas Bjorkman. That's what I was going to say. My next question. Clearly actually, he's turned that ship around. I got I got a question. It wasn't <laughs> it was to my account, not the uh, not the NCR account, but some from Orville. The, Sorry, from Orville Lloyd Douglas, which is quite the name, uh, says, I see articles praising Jonas Bjorkman, yet he only started working with Andy Murray two weeks ago. Why is Amelie not getting some respect? The reason Murray won Madrid and beat Nadal is due to the Amelie strategy and tactics, yet the sexist media refused to give Amelie Maresma credit for Murray's success on clay because she is a woman. The media should really be ashamed. This sexism is really disgusting. So thank you for that, Orville. Is there... Can we can we give any credit to to Bjorkman? I mean, it is the, the results are immediate from his arrival. I mean, if you want to talk about like causation, it's easy to say, oh, Bjorkman's Bjorkman arrives and now he can win on clay. We had him before, but is that you think lazy? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's lazy. I mean, it, to me, it's really up to Murray to set that narrative. If, if you're gonna, I mean, I wasn't in Madrid, so I didn't ask him, and I don't know what he said, but. If you would ask Murray and he and Murray says, yeah, Jonas gave me these like three tips that I've been implementing in my game and they've changed everything. Then, yeah, then you you give you give Jonas Bjorkman the credit. But as we know with Andy Murray, as he's always said, since the minute that he hired Amelie, since the minute that he hired Lendl back in the day, that these changes don't happen overnight, that, that yeah. a coach can't change a game in a month. It's just not possible. 
And that's what most players will tell you. And so I think that with Murray, I mean, Bjorkman was there in um, in Madrid for one day. And then it was, and then he was gone. But he was still carrying the narrative. The media still wanted to put, not the media. And I will say this, like, it's kind of like a weird pet peeve that I have as being a member of the media. If you have issue with something somebody says, like, just say, like, who said it? Like, but casting the dispersion upon the entire media seems without giving any specifics seems a little unfair to some of us who don't who yeah. don't do that i don't know the wide um, brush is kind not of always appreciated yeah. yeah just because i'm like i don't know like i didn't do that and then everybody's calling me sexist that's a little weird um but yeah so so i think that that that's the thing is like if andy murray were to say no this is all bjorkman and i give him all the credit then fair enough but but uh, absent that I think that we have to give tip, give credit where credit is due, which is to, uh, you know, to first of all, Andy and then also Amelie and, and his coaching team. And um, because even if you wanted to give Bjorkman all this credit, let's recognize it again. Since the French, uh, since February, Murray's only lost one person, which is Novak Djokovic. He hasn't had to play Novak Djokovic in the last two weeks. No. You know what I mean? Like in terms of like. Give the credit to Novak for not showing up. Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, you know, if you want to say it, I mean, Andy kind of had a slightly easier run. He got a bit lucky. I think in Madrid, he played that 3 a.m. match, which sucked. But then the next day he played Granolieres, who played the longest ATP match of the year against Gael Monfils and was tanked. And Murray had beat him very easily. And then the next day he plays Milos Raonic, who is basically playing on one foot, um, loses fairly easily um, and is now having foot surgery. So, you know, like he kind of got a little bit of luck there to kind of get his tournament back on track. Yeah, for sure. We got a question. You mentioned the scheduling of the late matches. Uh, we got a question from, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this, so I'm sorry, from Einar Bjorshol, um, which has a Norwegian slash O in it, so I don't know what to do with that. Um, says, uh, asks us to discuss scheduling at the tournaments, uh, especially referring to Madrid's late night matches and the scheduling of women earlier in the day. Yes, which tournaments have good schedules and which have bad ones? And are there any principles which promote good scheduling? Speaking of British media, there was a huge kerfuffle that Andy Murray had to play this late match, and it was considered an outrage, and ATP had to release statements, which I feel like they wouldn't have had to do if it was like... It's kind of nuts. They wouldn't have to do if it was like Nishikori Almagro out there at 3 a.m. But because of Murray, <laughs> there was an impetus to do this, which is, you know, fine. They should have to answer that on some level. Um, on that, I would say, first of all, you shouldn't put six matches in a day on one court. Exactly. At a clay court tournament. That's insane. That's dumb. With an 11 a.m. start, not a 10 a.m. start. Even which, still, yeah. you know, doesn't really... I know, I know. But, like, even if you were going to do it, at least push your start time up. Because but they, the 11 a.m. start is baloney. Because they really couldn't, I don't think... I mean, we talked about this before. Like, it'd been hard to move one of the night session matches. Because people bought night session tickets and were only there for the last two matches. You buy a night session ticket, you're there for two matches in the stadium. You can't and that should suddenly... be made clear because I yeah. yeah, I got a bunch of questions about that. Like, why aren't they moving the Murray match? And it's like, because the night session ticket holders are guaranteed two matches. You can't just move one to another court. That's just not They should have moved the fourth day match is what they should have done. Yeah. But Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, I guess they was they weren't really that behind the fourth one. I forget which one it was that day, but it went really long. Um might have been Federer Curios. It was Federer Curios, yeah, because yeah, Rafa was the one before that, and then it was Federer Curios. Yeah. So that makes sense. Curios, by the way. Quick sidebar on Kyrgios, being swaggy, have, being 1-0 against Federer and at all. It's pretty good. Pretty legit kid. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Um, loses to Isner, yep. but, you know, he's still winning things and winning on clay. So respect 
for that again should be getting penalized more than he is we've heard it's like we say that every week about curios yeah he's winning but he should be getting slapped on the wrist more yeah broken record Um, i totally agree um but yeah no six matches on a on a single court particularly the show court is ridiculous it should be three and two um three in the day session two at night that's what you see at the majors that's what you see at most tournaments um, off the top of my head, I can't think of another tournament that does the four and two. There are some indoor um, tournaments. There are some, but I, yeah, but I, I they just, have but, like, they usually start at 10 a.m. and they, right. Yeah. They have early, and they're shorter times. matches usually because yeah. they usually go faster yep. courts. Yeah. So that's a, that's a little ridiculous. I think that there's no doubt that the women get completely shafted in Madrid makes no sense to me because first of all, it is a premier mandatory. This isn't a situation where you have to a joint tournament where both tournament where the men's and the women's are at different um, tournament levels, you know, like a city open type of situation or um, Rome is another good situation. Another good example. Yeah. You know, Rome is, is a mandatory for the men. It's a premier, but not a premier mandatory for the women. So if you're going to, yeah, if you're going to shaft the girls, there is a little bit and give the priority to the men. I can see where the ATP has leverage there. But in Madrid, that's not the case. So, you know, having the women play, or the, the, you know, the first two matches is ridiculous. Having, this is the first year that Madrid, I believe, played the women's final on Saturday instead of Sunday. Okay. Poor Svetlana Kuznetsova plays, what, five matches in seven days? Six matches in seven days, maybe? She played, like, yeah, six and seven days. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? You have an exhausted Maria Sharapova. You have an exhausted Serena Williams. I mean, you know, you get what you're – I mean, that's going to be what happened. And I did have, you know, um, a few a few tennis inside folk um, <laughs> bitching about that So to me. So that's an issue. And then, then... – Can I hot take briefly? I don't think Madrid should be a premier mandatory tournament. I think they have very little affection for women's tennis there. The stands are always empty. And that's not always about – um, about you know scheduling, there just isn't in Spain. There just isn't as much respect or enjoyment or appreciation, whatever, for women's sports. And it's not a good showcase for WTA to have one of its four biggest tour events there. It looks terrible. Put it in Rome. Put it somewhere else. Put it in make make Cincinnati the mandatory or Canada or something else. That's another one of these fives that you can upgrade. Um, the scheduling. Is irksome, especially the putting it before, um, putting the final before a men's semi, the way the U.S. Open used to do in Super Saturday back in like the 80s. When you end the women's tournament and the men still has multiple rounds left to go, that really shows that you don't think it's like a main event whatsoever. Uh, WTA should end that designation for Madrid. It's just not a good look for women's tennis at all to have one of these four biggest tournaments have empty stands for marquee matches. There was a Serena Sharapova match there when they played in the quarters, I guess on blue clay in 2012. That was like barely half full, and that should not happen ever at one of your biggest tournaments for um, two of the biggest stars in the game. Even if obviously I know it's not a rivalry, or whatever, but it shouldn't happen. And I think it's a bad look for WTA, and they should get and they should demote Madrid ASAP. I reached out to a few different players, a few different agents, um, just to to get their thoughts on Madrid, and I got back a lot of, you know. Uh, notes that are probably not readable on air. Uh, in terms oh, but please of how they try, do. please try. No, no, but I mean, you know, that aren't they're, they're not happy. Um, yeah. And um, that becomes a massive issue, especially when you are talking about a tournament that, again, as Ben and I said before, 
isn't really a reliable indicator for the French. No, what I would do, what I'm suggesting is that Mr. Tyriac, as everyone calls him, Mr. Tyriac, I think Mr. Tyriac should call up some investors in Berlin and see what he can get going. Oh, Berlin would be rad, dude. Oh. That's, where, that's where the WTA tournament was before it moved I to know. Madrid. Bring back, I don't know how Berlin doesn't have a single tour stop. It's baffling to me. So put it in Berlin, put it in Amsterdam. There's so many cities that would be like big European cities that would do really well with this tournament. I think if and, and maybe just the economy is a big part of it, Madrid for the crowd. That could well be it for especially talking about the matches that should be the most popular and the Dahl Ferrer not being full. It's just not tennis in the best possible showcase, I think. So I know you don't want to pull the report on a tournament that's, that's fairly new and has had a lot of investment in it, but there are definitely major problem areas with Madrid. I hope they get better, but right now the signs are discouraging at best. Yeah, and it's not a situation like we saw when the, the WTA goes to the Middle East. Or even when they go into China, uh, where again crowd issue, the crowd issues are there, um, and a lot of those yeah. tournaments are, are standalone um, in a lot of ways. Well, I mean Beijing's with the 500 on the men's side, but um, it, at least in those situations, you feel like there's it's a developing market, so you kind of feel like okay, we're we're gonna go with it. We're gonna try and ride this out. We are gonna try and like bootstrap ourselves into these markets. But Madrid's an established market, like, and it's the tournament has been there for years now, and it hasn't gotten better. Yeah. Um. And that that becomes incredibly frustrating, especially for the women who are coming off of you know Stuttgart, effectively, where there's nothing but love for that tournament, and the crowds are amazing there. Um. And uh, and then they got to go. Same with in, Charleston. Yeah, same with Charleston. And then they got to go into, you know, an echoey, cavernous, quote unquote, magic box. It's just no way. I, I don't know. It's awkward. Super awkward. But now we're on to Rome, which is not awkward. It's messy and chaotic, and very DIY for a tournament. And what I was when I came to Rome the first time, I expected it to be like a free for all. Like there's just no rules. You do whatever you want. It's you know. Caligula-esque here, and it's not that way. There's people, there's some surprising people who say no and make things harder for you at the Rome tournament. It's, it's not yeah. ideal. It has everything. Yeah. Like it's funny. Like Madrid and Rome, if they like put all their strengths together, they could be the best tournament in the world. They like what each what every what Madrid lacks, which is sort of soul, crowd, passion, um, you know, that those intangibles. Rome has overflowing, but Madrid has organization and precision and reliability in a way that Rome does not. So anyway, we get the total opposites. Not many media do both back-to-back, but I imagine it would be a jarring back-to-back, much the way Indy was Miami can be, too. Um, Yeah, so Rome is here this week. Um, Thoughts on the Rome? What what are you looking for in Rome, I guess, before we get to Ubaldo? Um, I am looking for uh, to see if Novak puts a stamp down mm-hmm. on the tournament. I think that 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 will be an an important indicator before Paris. Obviously, Rafa, um, whether or not he can he can get things together on the women's side in Rome. I'm looking at Simona Halep. I'm concerned about what I've seen from her through the clay season. She's a way better clay quarter than a uh, opening round loss to Alize Cornet in Madrid. Um, so yeah, so I'm looking for her. I mean, I think that, that anything less than, than a semifinal run will be incredibly disappointing. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm looking for, but, but on the whole, 
you know, I mean, I think that that we know Serena and Maria look pretty good. I mean, Maria, I thought, looked really good um, in Madrid up until the semifinal against Kuznetsova. But um, but I'm not as worried about her as I was maybe after Stuttgart. I, I would I would expand on Halep. I'm looking at Halep, Sharapova, and Nadal, all of whom have combined for zero titles on European clay this year, which is pretty stunning. When you consider those are the three players who I think have clay as sort of the big some of the biggest parts of their identities as players. I mean, these are players who should be at their best on the stuff, and they haven't been yet. Um, I don't know which one is the most concerning. I think Sharapova has looked pretty good. I think even though she lost to Kuznetsova, um, Kuznetsova played great, and Sharapova has had, you know, uh, uh, lipstickable losses, you know, things that could be explained in terms of losing to Kerber, who went on to win in Stuttgart, and Kuznetsova. Yeah, I mean, she's had losses that haven't been, like, that have been explainable. Um Halep, not as much. Nadal, not as much. So Sharapova is the one I'm least worried about at the three. But if she goes out early here to somebody um, not good, that will really sort of test the Klaipova mojo, mojo going into the French Open where, you know, she has won twice. But like we say, it's always like, how does this work with, with Klaipova? <laughs> and uh, the bubble could always burst at any moment, I feel like, with that phenomenon. So. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And and with Serena, obviously, I think that we know that regardless of result, I think that she's in pretty good shape for the French. And yeah. um, that's not too much of a concern. I'm interested to get your thoughts on on Roger. Okay, we haven't talked about Roger at all this episode. Explain awayable losses or concerns. I mean, he's, you know, he's typically a pretty good clay quarter. You know, he's not a shitty one. He's also someone like in the uh, Murray fit of a category where Madrid was always his best clay court tournament because it's the one that's most like Wimbledon. So he did well there. I mean, the the Curios match was great. That was an exceptional match. That was a really, really fun match. Um, went deep in a third set tiebreak. If Roger gets through that match, I see him beating... Well, he could have lost to Isner in the next round too. But I mean, he had a draw where he could have easily made some noise and beaten Nadal in the semis. He's done it before in Madrid. Wouldn't have shocked me. Um I don't know. Rafa, yeah, I would, I would, I guess, yeah, sure. Add Roger to the list of people who you want to pay attention to in, in Rome. Because I think that, I don't think, but I'd also at the same time, we talk about this a little bit separately, um, with Venus, who's had, who luckily for her only uh, had Muguruza withdraw, so didn't have, doesn't have as nightmare a draw. I don't feel like Roger and Venus should be spending energy on clay. I just think that it's sort of yeah. throwing, throwing valuable energy you know, trash barrel fire. They're not going to win this. They're not going to win the French Open, either of them. I'd be very surprised. Roger has a much better chance than Venus, obviously. Um, and they can both win Wimbledon. So in their in their mid-30s at this point, both of them, what are they doing, you know, going all out on clay? I don't get it. And Leighton Hewitt is, for the first time in a while, like, it's a player who said, I'm openly, like, I'm skipping the French to play Wimbledon, which hasn't happened... And on the, it used to be a very, very common thing on the tour. Like, top, top players would do it. Lendl did it. Navratilova did it. Uh, you know, a lot of players did it. So I would like to see both of them approach that. Maybe not Federer. Like I said, Federer can make it deep in the French pretty reliably. But Venus especially. I don't know what she's doing playing on clay. Yeah, there, there's a good argument there. I mean, I think that, you know, if Venus had won a few matches or felt like she was comfortable after Madrid, maybe she pulls out of Rome. 
you know, maybe. Yeah, no, that's true. So, you know, she just hasn't really done anything, obviously, on Clay. So she just wants to get her mojo going. And maybe maybe it's a situation where both of them are looking at it kind of the way that we were talking about Murray and Kavitova towards Wimbledon, which is like wins are wins. Confidence is confidence. And if you can get wins yeah. on your on your worst surface, maybe that helps. But but I see your I totally see your argument. Especially with Venus, it was what was it? It was 2013 when she went that really, really epic match in the first round of Paris against Ula Radvanska and was so hurt or spent from that afterwards that she pulled out of Wimbledon. And that's just like, why would you put all your chips in the Ula on clay basket when you have Wimbledon coming right up? <laughs> there are three, there are three weeks this year. It's a gap. Um, and interestingly on that front to sort of be it, you know, ADD tangent, none of Venus, Serena or Sharapova are currently in any warm tournament. Of, on grass, which I kind of thought people would oh. go to Birmingham. I thought Birmingham. I thought Birmingham would be a stacked, stacked yeah. field. Yeah, yeah. And good as point. of now, it's not. I mean, Halep is there and Ivanovic is there, but that's not like the sort of level of star power I expected. Um, It'll change. So maybe if they if they lose early in the French, they'll probably take wild cards and stuff. But yeah, it's that uh, anyway. That's yeah, to think about interestingly, Serena was asked about that um, either today in Rome or yeah, by me. By you, right? Yeah. Sorry, yep. I periscoped in. Um, I know. <laughs> which Not is a fan of that. which is another discussion we can have. But um, but yeah, was asked about that and said she hadn't uh, she doesn't plan on entering any of the the, the warm up tournaments this year. So yeah. Yeah, know, she was from. She's like, not this year, maybe next year. Which was weird about next year because I'm like, you mean in an Olympic year? Why would you enter a warm up tournament at Wimbledon in an Olympic year? That's a lot of tennis. <laughs> I think she just probably wants more negotiations to get more money. I don't think she yeah. liked the offers this year. That's how I would That's read fair into that. Enough. Yeah. Speaking of someone whose offers we always like, let's go to Ubaldo Scanagata, our guest for this week from Rome. Uh, we introed him briefly again. Like I said, this is one of the rare times we're recording the interview after the main part of the show. So who knows what we're getting here, but I'm sure it'll be zany and Ubaldo full. All right, let's, uh, let's hear from me and Ubaldo in Rome. We'll see you on the other side. Very pleased to be joined by Ubaldo Scanagata, the dean of Italian tennis. I think you would say, ha- "Welcome." I wouldn't say. No. You, you may say it, but I would. No. <laughs> I'm very, very glad to have you with, with us here, Ubaldo. For those of you who are not aware of Ubaldo, Ubaldo is one of the most memorable people in tennis. I think it's fair to say a, a, gr- a great character of the sport. I don't know. Again, it's up to you to say that. I mean, I hope you're right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let's just start at the beginning with you, Bob, because obviously you have a pretty interesting story, history in the sport. Uh, you yeah. were a player. You played at this tournament, the Italian Open, at one uh, point. Well, Talk us uh, through your, your, how you got to be where you are now, in a short well, version. Well, very short. Uh, first of all, I, I was a tennis player. I was a national college champion in Italy. Uh, twice in singles, uh, twice in doubles, and I got scholarships in the States to play for American colleges. I got six scholarships, and I went to play uh, in the first college that sent me a a request, because I didn't know the other five were coming. So I went to Oral Roberts in Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma, which was quite a surprising choice for me, because I didn't have any idea that it was a religious school, and when I got there and I was asked the first day if I was where everybody, uh, if I 
what was my, my religion and where everybody was. They told me they were in, all in the chapel and I was a little bit shocked. <laughs> but apart from that, it was fun. It was a great experience. Uh, the, the team was uh, great. We were traveling all United States. I think I, I went in more than 35 states in mm. six months, Wow, which was great. And, uh, and I learned uh, to speak very well Spanish because all my uh, <laughs> teammates were talking uh, Spanish because they were most of them were Spaniards, uh, South Americans, uh, and so my main goal was to learn English, and I came back learning pretty well the Spanish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> English is pretty good now, too. <laughs> yeah, well, I improved a little bit yeah. afterwards. So then, how did you get into tennis on the then, media side, I guess? Well, then, you went back to play professionally? No, then, no, 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 no. Then I went back to Italy, and uh, in seven, 1974, uh, uh, 75, I was tournament director in Florence, an ATP tournament for uh, about six, seven years. Well, I was organizing, promoting the tournament, was in a private club, a very old aristocratic sort of club, and I was taking care of the sponsors, uh, dealing with the players, and, uh, and it was fun, and uh, I had an experience on the other side. And you learn a lot from being a tournament director. You have to deal with everything. Yeah, I, yeah, especially being a small tournament. You had to do, you had to care, take care about organizing parties for the players, trying to please them. Right. At the same time, uh, talk with the press and and see what the press where where where, are, where the media what the media wanted and. Uh, uh, it was quite a successful experience because I was able to have some top 10 players in a tournament which had at the time only $50,000 prize money. And to have, for instance, Arthur Ashe and Harold Solomon playing in Florence for a, such a small event was a great success. And, uh, and uh, three, four times I think my tournament or our tournament in Florence was called the best uh, the best of the uh, minor events uh, because all the players were having fun a uh, lot of hostess beautiful hostess beautiful <laughs> girls and uh, which was a kind of attraction and uh, uh, i had given to uh, different uh, young uh, uh, girls in florence uh, they uh, they had to organize each of them had to organize one evening everyone had 500 dollars uh, only budget okay. and every night had to be a, a nice event uh, either in a discotheque in a restaurant in a bar and so there were six days in the tournament where every night there was something happening and so all the players were coming back john alexander uh Cajol, all the french uh, uh, one evening uh, just to make it short uh, a, a, an event with diamonds uh, hidden in the sandwiches Oh uh, and there were 2,000 sandwiches, and <laughs> who could find uh, four diamonds? I mean, you know, the, in the sandwiches, they, they could keep it. And the w wife of uh, Jean-Francois Cojol, who in that tournament beat Arturage in the quarters of finals, found two uh, diamonds in two different sandwiches, and she's still wearing it. And <laughs> Cojol is a, has been tournament director in... in uh, uh, Marseille in Paris Bercy. Cajol, every time I ask him anything, even if now he remarried, <laughs> he still, uh, you know, would like to embrace me because they were so lucky, you know, out of 2,000 sandwiches. Uh, and the sponsor was the Beers, the famous diamonds yeah, sure. company, South African company. Yeah, the beers, and so on. Yeah. 
And so that, that was one of the events. Uh, and I was the first one who celebrate uh, a tennis event uh, with the champagne. So uh, nobody had done it uh, in tennis world. Yeah. I mean, they had done it on, on Formula One. Formula One, right. Yes. Yeah. But in the 70s, if you look around, you'll see that nobody had done it before. And then afterwards, it became uh, you know, a tradition everyone is doing now. Spraying the champagne. Spraying yeah. the champagne around. Yeah. So that, you know, there was a few things that uh, yeah, it was fun. I mean, cool. I enjoyed it. When, how did you make the switch to the media side? Well, then when I, uh, well, I already, already had started to write some stories about the, the incredible uh, life in the campus. Uh, in the, in the, as I said, in a very religious campus where all the girls or people here who were meeting before even asking my name or my country, they were asking which religion was mine. So that was already. So I thought it was a strange story, and the library was uh, with certain automatic things that you wouldn't have in Italy, uh, where I thought we were still in the third world in, in yeah. terms of college. So I started to write for the local paper in Italy, La Nazione, which has been my newspaper for more than 35 years. And uh, I started to send stories about the life in the campus and so on, and as a freelancer at the beginning. And when I came back from the United States, I was hired. And then I was also playing tennis, and uh, the newspaper asked me, while I was playing tournaments, if I could uh, write about the tournaments I was playing. And since I played, for instance, the Italian Championship, I lost once to Barazzuti, 7-5, five, 6-3, 7-5. Both the first and third set, I was up 5-2. Uh -huh. Barazzuti was number seven in the world. Uh, uh, well, you know, I, had to, I was writing on third, uh, as you say, third person, yeah. without saying, you know, uh, <laughs> Barazzuti beat Ubaldo Scanadei. <laughs> but I, I, was, I was trying to not write ever about myself, only when it was really needed. I, we were, this, the match was shown on TV, on the Italian TV, so it was fun to, I mean, I had to say something, but yeah. in general I was talking about Panatta uh, and my relationship with them, because I was in the national junior team and uh, I played, uh, I had beaten actually Panatta, who was the French Open champion later on, when we were, he was, uh, I was 18 and he was 17. Uh, at the end, uh, in the national championship of third category, yeah. when we were both young, so so that that uh, that's how I mean. And with Paolo Bertolucci, who played Davis Cup and won Monte Carlo, we had won uh, three tournaments together, and, uh, and I had never lost to him, uh, with him uh, in doubles. And I was always uh, teasing him, saying, "Oh, you betrayed me for." a much worse player like Panatta. I mean, <laughs> while we were unbeaten. At least with Panatta you have lost a lot of matches. <laughs> and with me, you've never lost. There you so go. You, that you made a great mistake. So going forward a little bit, you worked yeah. for the newspaper for quite a while and then you made the switch so to, I started, to, to Ubi well, Tennis. I, so I, I was, guess, no, well, I was writing and writing for, for many, many years. So this year I will be, I think, my 42nd Wimbledon in a row. Uh, because I started in 74 when uh, when uh, uh, Jimmy Connors beat uh, Ken Roswell in the final, then the year after he lost uh, to Arthur Ashe. Uh, the right. I was a very good friend of Arthur Ashe, by the way, because uh, I had invited and organized an exhibition, a photographer exhibition for Jenny Motusami Ashe in Florence. Uh, with a lot of uh, press and so on, I had organized in the Excelsior Hotel. Uh, she was a she is I bet, a great, great uh, photographer of uh, different things, and uh, and so anyway, 
Um, so what did you ask? Just me? I guess how, how moving forward, Ubi Tennis. I want to know about Ubi yeah, Tennis. Okay. How did that so, start? Okay, so that, that, that that's your starts, website. For yeah, 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 yeah. Now. Okay, that uh, much later on, or after that, so many years ago, I saw that the, the, the printed paper was struggling, and I've done uh, more than 1,000 TV broadcasting in Italy, no. uh, and uh, and also radio which I'm still doing for Radio Monte Carlo. And now, uh, and then uh, in the, I started with a blog in 2007, uh, no, at the end of 2006, and, uh, and at the beginning I had maybe 100 readers, then 300, then 500, and so on. And then when I was on May 2008 here in Rome, uh, some boys and girls who were helping me with the blog, they said, we should do it, a, a magazine online, with tennis online, with, with the blog, you always, your story goes, the last story goes up, no. and, uh, and, and maybe it's not better than the one who is down, and uh, I was a sort of graphomaniac, writing maybe six, seven stories a day, so maybe the, 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 you know, the first one was not as good as the number seven, which was disappearing yeah, sure. on the page, so they said, well, let's go, on the May 2008, Ubi Tennis start. And uh, at first, the idea was to be, okay, I was sort of supervising four people, mm -hmm. and then they became six, and then they became eight. Then we said, okay, everyone should be the head uh, or the boss of the day, the Monday boss, the Tuesday boss. So we started with that, and then we say, why don't we start to build up a team? And so now maybe there have been days when we have been 60 or 50. Yeah, you have an incredible army of people. Yeah, I, yeah do. I do have uh, because they like it. They love to be journalists uh, and try to be a journalist, to, be, to learn how to write. I think uh, personally that I am able, after all these experiences, to teach something, like how to make an headline, how to be uh, quick, uh, how to check the social networks uh, and things like that and for for everyone is a good great experience uh, if you think that some people organize the master in journalism of two days and they ask uh, a lot of money and they learn nothing uh, with me honestly I'm not uh, now don't want to sound presumptuous but I think they really learn they learn how to to do so many things editing and things like that yeah and uh, uh, they can and then they start, when we are in a tournament, we are all connected through Skype, and sometimes we are 15 in the same day, and everyone adds something. And we say, oh, did you see that? Oh, why don't we do that? Have you seen that Ben Rothenberg has written a great tweet? No, no, but I'm, I, I'm serious. I mean, uh, now I'm sure it could be you or it could be somebody else. But uh, for instance, today, just today, okay. you, you wrote that Chanel uh, Schapper, uh, Shepherds, yeah. uh, she, she quit tennis, but she's the coach of Alison Risk. Nobody knew it, let's say, around, and we put it after minutes yeah uh, so uh, that is one idea but every day we try to do something different and uh, what I like of this first of all that I am in touch with a lot of young people which is somehow uh, rejuvenates me or yeah. should uh, second uh, that uh, we become friends and I don't uh, only try to teach or, or to give a chance to become a journey to someone but uh, we build up a sort of community where everyone helps each other. They all invite each other 
uh, in their houses. Uh, I try to find the logistic pro uh, to solve logistic problems. For instance, in Wimbledon this year there will be four people, or for for not just for Ubi Tennis, because Ubi Tennis is a website that serves four different daily papers. Okay. Uh, plus two radios. So it's quite an empire you have. Yeah. So this means that, for instance, these four these four guys they will have to pay 100 pound per week to stay in Wimbledon because I found some. Uh, families who we lost them so everyone even if sometimes you know I, I cannot pay I cannot afford to pay everyone a, a, a lot but now I'm paying much more than I was at the beginning because I'm uh, having a lot of you know luckily sponsors yeah. and so on so but for instance you know for somebody to come to the, cover the US Open or the or, or the Roland Garros or whatever and have a chance to do it also in Australia in Australia, four people had to pay uh, 300, uh, 400 U, uh, dollars, um, Australian dollars, for 17 days. That's incredible, which, yeah. So, so this so you, is... You, make, you find some good deals. Yeah, I found some good deals for everyone, and I like uh, to help them. And 10 of these guys that have been started with me have found a job here in Italy. And five or six, they are uh, all involved with the Italian Tennis Federation, which has been always my strong, uh, uh, let's say, I can't call it enemy, but I mean, I've Adversary, always been very adversary because I've always been very critical. Let, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about that part of, of, your, yeah. of your legacy, because I think that's, that's an important part for me, that you yeah. are someone who's incredibly independent yeah. and also very... Uh, Outspoken yeah. and not shy, no. and you're not afraid to make enemies, and you're no. not afraid to. I have tell a lot of enemies. enemies. So <laughs> talk about that. How, how do you talk? I guess who are some of your enemies? And no, but I mean, no, but you don't need to listen. But I guess how do you keep that approach of not uh, being conforming, conforming to uh, to the norm? Because there's a lot of people here. It's a very political world, tennis, yeah, and a lot yeah. of people are afraid sure. to ruffle feathers the way that you do, and yeah. you seem entirely unafraid in a way that I respect and can be a little scary sometimes. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know. Uh, I've always uh, loved my profession and my job, and I love it so much that the idea that you have to be dependent from the powers is something that I hate. No. Uh, I, my life would have been much, much easier. Uh, I, I mean, just to give you an idea, since I've been often critical towards this the federation, and the one before, and the one before, and the one before, uh, the, the, the sponsors, the, the, the normal sponsors of the Italian Tennis Federation, Rome, Italian Open, are afraid to sponsor me. Yeah. So I have to find sponsors somewhere else, which is not easy because normally, of course, uh, those who are involved in tennis, uh, but they have been uh, in certain situations, uh, uh, they have been told that they shouldn't sponsor Ubi Tennis because Ubi Tennis is too much of independent. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that uh, I am I have a prejudice against. I, I for instance I, I wrote and noticed many progress in the Italian Open in recent years. The choreography, the, the way the site has been updated, yeah. updated and yeah. so on. At the same time for instance last year we were eating horrible food in, in, in the not only in the media but in the center or and I wrote it so many times and this year I'm very happy they have Eat Italy which is Eat Italy which is a great uh, company yeah. great food and everything has made you know I think uh, I made something you yeah. know uh, for instance in Wimbledon uh, for years 
there were transportation only from Wimbledon to uh, Southfields and never to the village, while most of the journalists and other people were living at the village. So I wrote thousand letters to Wimbledon all England club until finally now there is a, a shuttle a bus that every half hour or so brings the people up to the village and you were one of the founding members of ITWA right of the International yeah, Tennis Writers yeah, Association which yeah. really got a lot of things better for, for everybody yeah, but, who followed. I, but we were trying to do with my, myself Philip Buen uh, Richard Evans and others at the beginning when nothing was existing but we had to take care about the toilet paper which was missing in the new spin the toilet or 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 the papers were not the the, the, the typewriters that we were giving because there was no computer they were uh, all broken uh, in certain places so we had to fight for elementary first i mean it's like uh, you know the the, the you know uh, middle age uh, yeah. of the press rooms but we were trying to do this for everyone, not just for ourselves, for the Itwa member. Uh, and that was the philosophy. We had to, to improve the situation for all the journalists. And, and, that, and nobody was trying to make money out of it or try to get favors from the organizer. You couldn't be uh, at the same time, uh, in my opinion, an Itwa member and working with the tournament which was your sort, I don't call it counterpart, but I mean your, you know, your, interlocutor, it, it, interlocutor. It, it, yeah, or your subject. I mean, your what you, subject. What you cover, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we see that now. There's so many conflicts yeah. of interest in yeah. tennis. And, yeah. and some people, ITWA members, ITWA board yeah. members, have various, working for various tournaments and grand slams yeah. and all sorts of interests. Yeah, yeah, that, so. that is impossible because uh, that's why, for instance, one of my points was that uh, if you were a member of the ITWA, uh, board or the or the uh, you 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 didn't have to be also member of the ITF commissions because uh, what was the point to be in both if uh, the the ITF was asking you certain things or giving you certain jobs or certain opportunities and then you had maybe to fight to get something different uh, on, on the ITWA board I mean so that I mean is something that I've never accepted and here for Rome I think I've done. Uh, so many fights, you know, I, I was part of, and I'm proud of that, because to be honest, also in Paris, if there is now a, a navette that brings uh, the journalists and the media from, uh, from Roland Garros to uh, L'Etoile, Saint-Germain, that, that is due, and you can ask Philippe Bouin and all the others, for I don't know how many letters I wrote, and I was proud of it, because I have always been driving my scooter. <laughs> so I didn't need it. Yeah. It wasn't for me. Yeah. I was driving, my, and I've been in the last 25 years going to Wimbledon and Paris. I think I'm the only tourist, as I know, that goes every day with the Vespa, with the Spiaggio Vespa. <laughs> and I don't need any transportation. But I fought so much and so hard to get transportation for your, everyone. Your, your, your stubbornness is appreciated, I think, for sure. And it's, no. it's, it's, it's a good quality to have in an, an advocate for people. Well, so I know I, I like I, it. I well, like it. I'm I, proud of it. To switch a little bit to current Italian tennis, you've yeah. had also interesting interactions with a bunch of the current players, I think, in Italian yeah. tennis. And just wondering, for people who don't, people don't know much of this, our listeners are American and from all around the world. And so talk us through, I guess, the, the current crop of Italian players, you know, Fanini, Irani, Vinci, yeah. Schiavone, well, Panetta, okay. like, and how you get along with okay, and, first, how, you get, and okay. how the media in general in Italy gets along with them, okay. I guess. Okay, first of all, you, in all countries, 
uh, normally the media have more troubles with their own compatriots than with the other players. Yes, true. So in, in Sweden, uh, Borg didn't like to play with the Swedish media, to talk with the Swedish media. In Germany, Boris Becker sometimes didn't want to talk to the, uh, the German media and so on. The Italian, same thing. Uh, I always said, uh, uh, you know, I started my profession with Panatta. My first Roland Garros was in 76 when Panatta won the Roland Garros. And I was expecting Italian winning a slam every other year or every five years. Instead, for 40 years, we haven't won one. Uh, so, uh, with Fognini and the others, uh, what happened? That when they needed, let's say, uh, somebody to support them when the federation was not taking care of them uh, they were there their parents they were all asking why don't you write the oh, we haven't been helped and that when things changed and they became uh, more uh, uh, they became stronger better ranked and so the federation needed them and so there was uh, a, a more compromises and they both needed each other then, of course, uh, uh, if I was critical towards the Federation, even the player was asked to, uh, in a way, to uh, not give too much confidence and confidential uh, stories to myself. Yeah, sure. So, that was normal. Uh, with uh, uh, outside of the, uh, But I must say that when they finish to play, then I have a great relationship with all of them. It's when they're still playing that if you criticize because, you know, I mean... Uh, back this happened with Irani at the French Open last yeah, year, right? Because yeah. I think, I remember, I know it ended yeah. with you bringing her flowers. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, because, 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 yeah, because, uh, because for instance, uh, uh, Irani and Vinci, they were playing one day doubles, one day singles, and they didn't want to come to talk about singles if uh, they had just been playing just doubles. They said, oh, we are going to talk only about doubles. And maybe the next day, Irani had the semi-final uh, at the Roland Garros. Or, and I thought it was unbelievable because I said, look, I have to write every day and everybody to, wants to know tomorrow what, uh, what will be your preparation, what do you expect. And if you, and if you talked yesterday to us about, about uh, uh, your singles experience, still, we, we, I mean, the readers want to know that. And so the fact that they didn't want to understand made me furious. And I say to them, it's not professional. You can say whatever you want. I don't think you're a professional if you do that. So, of course, they didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then at the end, uh, I tried to explain to them what what, what uh, And I, I think at the end they understood. But uh, of course, uh, then I am, uh, I think I'm able also to understand that sometimes the, the players are not so serene, quiet, and they may they may come after a loss or they may be nervous, so it's uh, it's uh, well, you, you have to adjust, uh, yeah. the, the players have to adjust to the media, the media to the players and uh, well yeah, I don't sure. know what else, I mean I, anyway uh, Fognini, we had the, you know, Fognini is someone that sometimes on court he does everything he, he shouldn't do. Fognini, at the beginning, the father was always complaining because he was spending a lot of money, and uh, nobody did help him. And yeah. he was uh, hiring a uh, coach. Uh, he was uh, uh, hiring a coach also for another guy who was not uh, so uh, wealthy economically, called Naso. Uh, Guillermo Naso, yeah. 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 And uh, and uh, so the. Because uh, so the Fanini family has a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. They, they inherited suddenly some money from somebody who died.
Okay. And, and um, but they had, anyway. Uh, so uh, what happened? That uh, uh, so Fognini is a very sort of is a funny guy. He's a funny guy uh, who has uh, sometimes some sense of humor. He, he is Italian. He's a little. Uh, he didn't go much much to school. So sometimes. Uh, he, he doesn't really understand the certain uh, uh, subtle subtleties. Yeah. Uh, so you have to be careful the way you talk, and the, and sometimes he has also sort of prejudice, uh, of course, uh, towards the media and and uh, and of course uh, if uh, and then he, he doesn't control much himself uh, on court obviously, and yeah. and obviously and so. If he shouts against his father or his coach or whoever is uh, next to him, and you write it down and you repeat what he says, then the next day he gets furious at you. And uh, uh, and sometimes he does it, and everyone can listen to him on TV. And the microphone in Italy, they 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 they, 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 uh, they broadcast. Course, they yeah. broadcast, and then he cannot, uh, you know. You can't escape it. I mean, you cannot escape. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but the problem is that, you know, if someone makes a comment or so uh, on TV, it's on the air. He doesn't listen to it. But then, if someone something is written, then the next day, if he meets you, he looks at you like if you are uh, his uh, enemy. Which I'm, for instance, I'm not at all because I, in a way, I like him. I mean, outside of the, when he's playing tennis and he's doing crazy things. I think it's a, it's I a character. It was, a, it was impressed here last year where he wouldn't look at you, right? Yeah. Where you would, he would, when you asked a question, you were sitting in the front row, and he yeah. would turn and look to the side. Yeah, so yeah. It was fun. Uh, Watching uh, it, it was funny. Uh, and no. I will say also, even Fanini, one of the great treats of, of my life has been sitting next to you during a Fanini match, and yeah. you translate yeah. what he says in, in on court. And I remember there was one, he was playing Monfils at the French Open last yeah. year, and he, at one point, asked the umpire if he could move the sun because yeah. the sun was getting in his eyes yeah. and asked if he could move the sun yeah, <laughs> yeah but the, which, which shows that he also he also has a good sense of humor yeah. because for instance uh, I in a way I was very surprised about his love story with Flavia Pennetta because Flavia Pennetta is a different kind of girl yeah. and she's very spontaneous very genuine uh, five years older and uh, and uh, uh, you know I, they are very very different one from the other in a way but uh, uh, what can I say? She, she, she has sense of humor. He has sense of humor. Uh, but you never is unpredictable, and it's fun. So because also, okay, move the sun. Nobody has ever has, has never said something like that, no. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, he can say anything. And on court, he's unpredictable too. I mean, he beat Nadal twice this year on clay. Yeah. And then he loses to Kazakhstan in the in Davis Cup. Yeah, you just I, don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and he the, wins the Australian Open in doubles. Oh, and who saw la, that last year, last year he, he, he played Murray in Naples and he, he beat Murray in such an unbelievable way. He made I don't know many winning drop shots, and Murray got crazy. And and honestly, Fognini dominated that match. So uh, for sure he's talented. Uh, for sure he's unpredictable. Uh, I wouldn't say that he's the. Uh, most uh, is the deepest person in the world, in the sense that first of all, he's not too much cultivated, which doesn't help. 
and uh, but not many players, to be honest. They're very cultivated. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what else? I mean, uh, uh, for instance, I remember once I did uh, 300 kilometers running, driving a car to get to the, the Davis Cup draw in Sardinia. And I get there and uh, he says, oh, you're too late. I don't talk to you. And then I said, look, I'm late of one minute. No, no. So, so he went back and I had to follow him. And I followed him, uh, uh, filming him. with, uh, uh, with uh, And he said, I'm not talking because you're late. I said, OK. And so I said, OK, this is. And I put it on the website. I said, look, Mr. Fognini decided that it was one minute late after 325 kilometers uh, run uh, like a crazy in the uh, from the south of Sardinia to the north of Sardinia to talk to him and uh, he, he doesn't want to talk to you he doesn't you know it's, it's, it's not nice to me but especially not to my readers of course uh, you know what they write in the in a, in a in a blog or in a in a website you know you can imagine I mean yeah. I uh, in during Wimbledon last year I got 7,500 comments, posts, by readers in two days. Uh, so, and yeah. it's so complicated sometimes to to moderate them sure, because sure. they can say anything. Yeah. Sometimes you're, you you have to be careful with the lawyers because yeah. <laughs> because they can say uh, something, yeah. you know. Well, so you know what. Let's just move to a couple quick hits on the yeah. last two yeah. people I want to get right. to. First is Arani Vinci splitting up. Yeah. We just talked to both of them. Yeah. Do you have any information for yeah. us on what happened there? Yeah. Well, uh, everyone was surprised, especially because they had always said that they were the best friends, that they were having dinner together, lunch together, sometimes sleeping in the same room. To sh uh, then the, uh, Sarah Iran, his brother, it was, became the manager of both. And someone said, who knows? It, uh, uh, for him also it was embarrassing sometimes if someone, some sponsor wanted to sponsor Sara and not Roberta or, or asking for appearance money in a tournament, uh, uh, giving more money to Sara and less to Roberta. And so I thought that uh, Vinci probably made a mistake when uh, she decided to have him as a manager because uh, he was in an embarrassing situation, very difficult to deal and to persuade that he was not just pushing uh, his sister, uh, yeah. her sister, but uh, you know, uh, that's. So uh, everyone anyway was very surprised when they split up. Uh, they played an horrible match in Fed Cup versus France when they were beaten in less than one hour by Mladenovic and Garcia and they lost at the Fed Cup. We were up to love and we lost 3-2 to France and uh, and that day they didn't talk to each other. And after a few days, uh, uh, the, uh, David Errani, who was uh, Sarah's brother, uh, printed out, released a press release saying that they were going to sleep, uh, to, to split up. And nobody really understood. Of course, the president of the Italian Federation was very angry uh, about it because they were always thinking about Rio and the Olympic Games next year, the possibility to finally win a gold medal. The, the Italian tennis has never won a, a, a medal in the Olympics. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, having the number one doubles team was a good bet. And also, uh, so even if now there is Bolelli for Nini won the Australian Open, but they, they were they seem to be the best chance. 
so uh, well uh, actually nobody has really understood what happened uh, maybe Sarah Rani said officially uh, you know all the top 10 players don't play doubles most of them I mean you know, maybe true. one or two and I'm the only one who's always struggling having to play one day the singles the next day the doubles and then maybe the the you know the the uh, schedule them, yeah. conflicts and you have to play late uh, you don't have time to recover uh, or stay there all day waiting for the rain to stop yeah. and, and things so which is understandable uh, the reason why she, they made them this press release was uh, to to everyone uh, not very clear uh, not very understandable uh, not very well written uh, didn't explain much there was probably not, no need, even if today Vinci said, oh, I agreed, agree, even if it was David Rani who wrote it, I agreed on what uh, it was said. But in my opinion, it was a mistake, because since uh, Vinci had already an elbow problem, she could have very easily said, okay, I cannot play now, so we are not going to play, and then Sarah is playing uh, uh, Rome, she wants to play just singles, and then we will see. Yeah. And then, okay, here, okay, Vinci plays with Knaff because Irani was to concentrate in singles. That would have been perfectly understandable. Yeah. While there were a lot of gossips after this press release, a lot of gossips which I am not going to repeat. Okay, <laughs> okay, sure. The last one I want to ask about is Camilla Giorgi and her father, okay. who are, are very fascinating people, I think. For, on the American side, Camilla Giorgi is a, is a tremendous mystery. She's just, you know, pretty girl who hits the shit out of the ball yeah. on every shot. She's can beat anybody, can lose yeah, to anybody. She, she won a six top, she beat six top ten. Uh, I mean, she beat Sharapova, she beat Wozniacki, uh, you know, and she was, uh, she, she, she was fighting with Serena Williams in Fed Cup. Yeah. Uh, Venus, so, she almost beat in Australia. Yeah, I Venus, she was well, two Sergio, points. Sergio two said points he, far she, from, he, 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 she would win, and he was yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she he was wrong, but he was she was two points yeah. far from winning uh, versus Venus winning in the second set after winning the first. Yeah. So, uh, for sure, she has a great potential. Also, because she, when she beat Sharapova, Wozniacki, she doesn't beat them in a in minor small tournament. Wozniacki was beaten at the U.S. Open. I mean, no. uh, and so also in great occasions. I mean, she plays well. Uh, so uh, she's not uh, afraid. She's uh, not uh, very. She's a very instinctive player. She's a very shy player. Very so when, shy when you talk to her, she doesn't almost talk to you. Even if I took her on my motorbike in Wimbledon, I saw that the video yeah, with her on the back the of your scooter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was fun because then. And then I must say that it was. Uh, sort of, I was almost surprised when the last tournament where I met her. I think at the Australian Open. Uh, at the exit of the press conference, she came and she she gave me a kiss on the which normally someone who's very shy you wouldn't expect. And so I was almost shocked because very pretty girl. I would love to be kissed for other reasons, but uh, she was very nice. No, but I, yeah, but no, I'm joking. And the father was there, so there was nothing to hide. Okay. But uh, but uh, so the father is a, a sort of. Uh, uh, also very instinctive person I don't think uh, uh, he's the best coach in the world but he say, he thinks to be because he told me since many years when I saw him first in, uh, in Wimbledon I think it was already four years ago or so uh, uh, that uh, he had tried uh, to hire other coaches but no one he said to me no one tells them anything spectacular anything that I couldn't say 
uh, all the coaches I tried they tell her a few things which I've already said myself and uh, so why why should I uh, you know give uh, my daughter who trusts me more than anybody else uh, the same time with Camila when I talk to her sometimes I can see that she gets nervous when he's uh, pushing him uh, sort of in the wrong way yeah. uh, because he would like her to to hit all all the shots while sometimes if you have an empty court, wide court uh, open on your right you, you don't need to hit another cannonball it's enough you throw the ball uh, over the net yeah. and the other girl may be uh, 20 meters far away and she would never get it yeah so still uh, if I was a third cup captain and uh, I had to play a very strong player I would uh, try with Camila Giorgi because she can beat anyone while uh, today I wouldn't put Vinci probably I wouldn't even put Penetta on certain surfaces uh, and even Errani with her serve yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't Ge trust her Georgie seems fun I, I, covering Georgie I think would be a lot of fun I'm sort of jealous yeah. of Italy for Georgie because she's, well, George, she's but also, over, and, and, I mean and Georgie stories. and Fognini both I mean yeah, they're for, both for fascinating different reasons people, yeah. fascinating people I mean if yeah. you go uh, you wouldn't like to go to see certain players who maybe are even top 10 but they're terribly boring yeah exactly and what being interesting is what tennis is all about and I think yeah. that's what you're all about yeah and I just want to thank you I'm going to wrap yeah. it up thank you yeah. very much for okay. being with us here the only, the only uh, one last thing yes please when Macaro was playing <laughs> everyone was expecting Macaro to yell to an umpire and now when they go to the senior circuit what they expect they want Macaro to uh, uh, say some bad words to say to the umpire you are the piece of the uh, word or whatever and when we, when you have Tafognini if Tafognini comes out and he wins normally everybody says oh today was not, was not so much fun <laughs> which is true that's true thank you very much Ibaldo okay. I appreciate it ciao www.ubitennis.com le notizie i commenti le interviste del grande tennis internazionale ed italiano www.ubitennis.com Ogni ora aggiornamenti continui sul sito numero uno del tennis di Ubaldo Scanagatta Su ubitennis.com giocate al pantatennis e costruite la carriera virtuale del tennista So, grazie mille Ubaldo uh, Time for our rant rave corner to end the show but before we do thank you very much once again for listening to our show If you want to follow us when you're not listening you can do so all sorts of ways You can like us on Facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast you can also follow us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis if you want to send a question for an upcoming show you can do so our email address is no challenges remaining at gmail.com send anything you want questions praise hate mail we'll take whatever uh if you want to get new shows automatically you can do so all sorts of fun ways including on any podcast app that's with an rss feed you can get us on iTunes and leave us reviews on iTunes. We like that. It really, really, really does help us a lot if you guys give reviews on iTunes. Um, that's kind of how a lot of the, you know, when people search on iTunes for like tennis podcasts, you know, a bunch of tennis podcasts pop up and they're kind of rank ordered. And a lot of times, you know, that might be based off of uh, ratings, based off of listens, all these sorts of things. So please, if you can, you don't even have to like give like a full like paragraph or whatever. But if you can review us, you know, it costs you nothing, just 10 seconds of your time. Um, it's a really big boost. So there we go. 
Do you want to bat first or second in this rant rave medley? I'm going to bat second. Okay. Because I have a feeling that you have some things to say. <laughs> I have I have a short one and a long one. The short one is I went to a soccer game last night. We're referring because we're on different time zones. I'm referring to Sunday as yesterday and you're referring to it as today, which is amusing. Um, but Sunday night I went to a soccer game with dear friend Angelica Fertini. Went to her beloved Lazio playing Inter Milan. And it was obviously not European soccer atmosphere. They got two red cards, Lazio. So there was a lot of anger, vitriol. So that was entertaining and passionate and all those great things. I learned a lot of good new Italian insult words, which will always be useful. Um, But the main thing that struck me, and this is my mini rant, I have to keep it short, is that being a hockey fan and a former goalie in both hockey and soccer before that, I was a soccer goalie until I was like uh, 12 or 13. From the time I was like four for like nine years, the crowd like gives no appreciation to defense whatsoever. Like if there's like a great save by the goalie, there's mild clapping. Whereas if Lazio hits like a routine, not exciting shot that the other team's goal enters goalie saves, there was a much more respectful round of applause for like a successful attempt on net. And there's just no rewarding defense. Even when like the guy saw the penalty shot, it wasn't as loud as it should have been i don't know it's just the soccer mentality another thing that i can add to my list of grievances about soccer not respecting defense because it's just as important if not more important like in hockey goalies make great saves and they get much more applause than your the other goalie making a save don't like that bigger rant i flew over here as part of my journey but the part of the journey that was smooth was the washington to london flight and actually watched a bunch of movies which i never do on planes because i'm usually just have <laughs> the attention span to watch movies on airplanes, which is sad. Um, the first one I watched was Still Alice, which I knew oh, was wow. which, okay. I, which I knew was going to be super depressing, and was. Um, and so that was like you know, and I just got my flight canceled before, so I was like all you know sort of rattled or whatever. I was watching, I was like sad, you know, teary as expected. And then I wanted something to cheer up after watching Still Alice, and so. I want, I put on Big Hero 6. Have you seen Big Hero 6? I love Big Hero 6. And Big Hero 6 was so much more emotional for me than still Alice. And I was not expecting it. And I was like, as like, there are various like heartbreaking scenes in Big Hero 6. It was just a kid's movie. It's an animated kid's movie. And I was like crying. being like, what is wrong with me? Why is this so sad? This is supposed to be happy. And it's this current trend of making like, I don't know if it's a completely new development because obviously there's been Bambi and The Lion King and other things that have, you know, tragedy involved in them. But Big Hero 6 for me just seemed, and Toy Story 3 even, it's a tearjerker kid's movie. But even, even by those standards, like this movie was amazing, but shockingly knife twisty in a way that I did not expect it to be. And then I watched uh, Chris Rock Top 5 afterwards. I needed something that I was, really thought would be not gut punchy. And even though that movie is a little bit dark, it was nothing, nothing compared to Big Hero 6, which I highly recommend. But I want I wanted to come with an advisory, which I did not have. This movie will just break your soul. I wonder how much kids get it. Like, I was wondering that. I remember it's a lot, when, I was, when I saw The Lion King for the first time being like, Oh, this is fucked up. Like, they just shoved his father off a cliff into a stampede. That's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> really not. But I wonder if, like, kids watching, like, little kids. It's like an animated, you know, colorful, flashy kids movie. It has a lot of other kiddish um, sensibilities about it. But I wonder how much kids are, like, scarred by it or if they're oblivious and just the parents are scarred. I don't know. But this movie was, like, 
yeah, like I said, knife twistingly emotional. That's my rant rave. Courtney, your turn. Um, I don't even know if this is a rant or a rave. It's just a thought. Um, okay. But so last Sunday, I went to a Slater Kinney concert. My favorite band, as everybody knows, that listens to the podcast. Mm-hmm. It was the second time that I saw them this year. Um, uh, their reunion tour. And the first time that I saw them was in New York um, at Terminal 5. And it was kind of a standing room only concert. Like we were up on the second level, but we found a spot and we stood and it was great and it was wonderful. And this time around, they played in San Francisco at um, the Masonic Auditorium in Knob Hill. And it the lower level was all standing like normal general admission and then the second and third balconies i think were um seated you know ticketed venues kind of like when you and i saw arcade fire um in uh in brooklyn last year and i was sitting there with my friend steph and we were talking we were just talking about you know just shooting the shit before the show and i was like looking down on the sea of people that were like down on the floor level and i was just like and i kind of started laughing and i just thought you know Back, like, when I used to, like, tennis wasn't my obsession and music and concerts were, and I was going to, like, multiple concerts a week, and I was always, like, that person that was, like, literally first or second row deep in the general admission floor, like, get there an hour and a half before, stand there, jump around, dance around, all that sort of stuff. And I remember back, you know, 10, 15 years ago when this was happening, looking up at like the balcony seats and being like, who are these squares? Like who would go to a concert, like a rock concert and like sit like, that's so lame. Like, why would you even bother? Like, da, 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 da. If you want to hear the album, then just like sit at home and listen to the album. And like, you, you know, you're not going to come and like participate and dance around. And Burns. I know, like I, I was super judgy about it. Like when I was younger and then now like being a little bit older, obviously a, like I just, I, you know, I don't have the patience to like stand in line and, you know, I'm short. So if I get general admission and stand on the floor level and then don't get there right away, then I run the risk of somebody really tall standing in front of me and that ruins everything, which has kind of happened. So, you know, it's just in terms of gambling, it's just easier for me to just buy a seated, uh, a seat at shows now. And I still have just as good of a time and I still, you know, just have, just great memories and still enjoy the concert and everything. But I just remember. Did you, stay, did you stay seated during Slater Kenny or did you stand up for it? I stayed seated primarily because I was in the first row of like okay. the thing. And I kept looking around and everybody else was seated. So I kind of felt a little peer pressure to like just. That's be awkward. Seated. Yeah. You know, whereas remember, like, like Arcade Fire, we stood the whole time. Exactly. Because everybody around us was standing, especially the guys in front of us. At, when we went to go to Brooklyn, um, at the Barclays Center to see Arcade Fire, we were in second row in the balcony, but the row in front of us was standing. So we kind of had an excuse to stand because if somebody were to tap, and even they sat down. They sat down at some point, but like everyone behind us was still standing. Yeah, I was feeling down. pretty militant that night. I was like, "Fuck this! Yeah. Like this is Ben's first Arcade Fire concert. We are not sitting <laughs> through this shit." Like you know, but this it was like, okay, you know, it's fine. But I but I still had a great time, and I kind of was sitting there cursing myself a little bit, like my younger self. Of being like, oh, you're such a judgmental asshole. Like that was just like me. These like everybody around us having a good time. Like no big deal. Anyways, so that was like a little bit of kind of my like I guess rant against my younger self. Of like that's just a really stupid like thing to like let your mind get occupied with. Is this idea of like oh, 
those people sitting up like in the seat uh, in the seated seats like don't love the band as much as I love the band or they're not as committed or et cetera, et cetera. Um, because as I was joking with Seth, I was like, the people who are probably down on the floor aren't old enough to really get Slater Kinney. And actually everyone who like grew up with them are probably all seated up here because we're old. Um, so I love that it's not like a, it's not as much of a, um, of learning. It's just a reversing of your (laughs) snobbery. It's still me being judgy, but now I judge the kids down below, but no, I mean, you're officially crotchety. Congratulations. Officially crotchety. It was like, so it was like a weird moment of just like, oh man, like, you know, and just sitting there and being like, this is so much more convenient. I could just go and walk up to the bar and then get my beer and come back here and we have a seat and we don't have to get there two hours before the show. We can just get there 10 minutes before and our seat's there and it's great. And I'm not getting jostled. I don't know. It was definitely one of those like, oh, God, I'm old. But I knew that for a while because I haven't been going to concerts and standing in the general admission area as much because I had a really bad – I had like this tipping point when I went to go see Daft Punk a few years ago at the the – greek theater in berkeley and it was like i literally had to like eject myself and then i almost passed out in another concert where i just got like oh it was lcd sound system where it just got like too hot and too sweaty and i couldn't breathe and i had to like you know um get out of there so yeah so now i'm just playing it safe and sitting up top but i still had a really good time so i don't know i don't know what any of that adults can have fun too yeah grown-up squares can have fun too and you can sit there up top go. and still judge. It's fine. If you're a super judgy character, you can still judge. You, just judge you can judge from anywhere. Yeah, it's fine. You have to literally look down on people. It's the best. Literally. So thank you for listening to us and looking at us. Whatever way you choose, we'll be back with you next week. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Ciao. Blood and blisters on my fingers. Chaos rules when we're apart. Watch my temper, I go mental I'll try to be gentle when I